Welcome to Upahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the continent. I'm Kim Dion, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello, all our Ufahamu Africa listeners. There is so much to cover this week, a lot happening on the continent. We're going to hold off on a discussion of the coup in Burkina Faso until next week when we go in-depth with experts. So stay tuned for that next episode. For now, I'm going to refer our listeners to a great article in the Council on Foreign Relations by Ebenezer Obadare, who's looking at the ways in which uh, what looks like initially popular support for a coup should not be misinterpreted as a um, a lack of desire for responsible, accountable governance. So that's a great piece to take a look at um, in the meantime. Also, this week, we're going to cover some exciting funding and research opportunities and then go straight into our mashup episode with the Africanist podcast founder and host, Mbamba Ndiaye. Now, Dr. Ndiaye is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the Society for Humanities at Cornell University. He earned his PhD in comparative humanities from the University of Louisville, and his award-winning research examines pan-Africanism, protest movements in the Black Atlantic, soundscapes of social protests, Black popular cultures, and post-colonial theory. In the Africanist podcast, he investigates political, socioeconomic, and cultural issues in contemporary Africa and the African diasporas. I'm excited for our listeners to hear our conversation with Bamba. It was a real delight to get to interview him and for us to be able to do that together. Um, And one of the questions I ask him about is actually migration. And, um, you know, just kind of talking about African diasporas and the Black Atlantic, one of the um, one of the things I read this week was an important article in the Washington Post by Emmanuel Felton that also covers migration, but here in the U.S. He wrote about the findings from a recent Pew Research Center study that found that one in 10 Black Americans were born outside the United States. Black immigrants and their American-born children make up 21% of the country's Black population with an increasing number of migrants coming from Africa, according to this Pew report. Now, Felton writes that while Black immigrants have much in common with both U.S.-born Black Americans and other immigrant groups, their experience stands apart in a number of ways. For example, nearly a third of Black immigrants over the age of 25 have a college degree. That's compared to 22% of U.S.-born Black Americans. Now, all of this, of course, reminds me of the episode I did early on in Ufahamu Africa's history with Duke University professor and my dear friend, Candace Watt-Smith when she talked about her book, Black Mosaic. And I regularly assign Black Mosaic in my classes and my students love it. Not least because, you know, she has, um, in addition to quantitative data analysis, she has a lot of qualitative interviews with college students who are themselves from a diverse set of backgrounds, you know, all Black Americans, but, you know, some of them um, from African immigrant families, right? So first and second generation Ethiopian Americans, for example. Um, And so my students really like hearing these stories. And I thought it would be a good time to tell our listeners to check out Candace's book. It's, it's, it's not new. It's, it's, I guess it's becoming a classic for me now, but um, I think our listeners will enjoy reading and learning from it. Kim, I look forward to reading and learning um, from this work. And I wanted to also share a really exciting piece of news for us at Cornell and for Kim and I in particular, um, because we're going to be able to get together uh, for this event, which is that the Working Group in African Political Economy, well known as WAGAPE, is going to be held at Cornell this spring in person, April 28th through 30th. So mark your calendars. We'll be sending out the link to apply 
um, through our Ufahamu Africa um, Twitter account and look for it um, on the web. And because we invite all scholars who are interested to submit a paper to present at the meeting um, in terms of those who are working um, in particular, who are combining field research experience in Africa with training in political economy methods. Um, and so we look forward to a really wonderful set of papers and great scholars to bring together um, to advance these works for publication. It'll be great to see you and to also meet up with my Wagape friend, Brian Dillon, who is now a member of the faculty at Cornell and helping to organize this Wagape uh, meeting at Cornell, um, talking about economists. Um, the Wheeler Institute for Business and Development at the London Business School has designed an interdisciplinary open access lecture series to study the impact of Africa's history on contemporary development. The 10-week course, led by Elias Papianu, um, Leonard Wanchikon, Stelios Mihalopoulos, and Nathan Nunn, um, notable political economists, uh, will feature leading experts and guest scholars across economics, history, political science, cultural anthropology, business, and psychology to provide a forum of dialogue across multiple subject areas. So there's going to be 10 main lectures, 10 special and plenary sessions covering major aspects of African history. And this is going to be every Tuesday and Wednesday from 10 Eastern time, um, 15, 1500 hours, so 3 p.m. Um, Greenwich Mean Time for 10 weeks. And that's going to start February 1st and continue through um, April 13th. Um, and you can register to, to participate. Again, this is open access, so it's freely available to anyone who has an internet connection and, and wants to take part. So one last thing, too, before we go is all this, um, you know, academic ways to learn stuff. Uh, there is a great postdoctoral fellowship opportunity with our friends and colleagues at NYU Abu Dhabi for a social scientist who studies Africa. We'll post the link um, to that job and to other things we've mentioned on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. Let's now go to our conversation with Dr. Bamba Njai. Welcome to the show, Bamba and Jaye. Thank you for having me. So the the big reason why we wanted to have you on Ufahamu Africa is because we're huge fans of The Africanist, which oh, um, some of our you. listeners may know is a podcast that investigates political, socioeconomic, and cultural issues in contemporary Africa and the African diasporas. So thinking of Africa globally, not limited to the continent. So I wonder if you could tell listeners more about your podcast, um, what prompted you to start it, um, maybe share a favorite favorite episode or two and um, what you see is um, some of your, you know, greater achievements through the conversations that you're having with the guests that you've had on the show thus far. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm also a very big fan of uh, Ofahamu Africa, and it's a pleasure to be here today. So for me, for a long time, I've had um, a, uh, I've developed love for uh, podcasting. And uh, uh, back in 2016, actually, that's when I wanted to start a, uh, I was think debating between a podcast or a talk show. Then I talked to a couple of my friends in Louisville. Uh, one of them uh, was an actress and I was telling her, hey, what if we had a 
a YouTube talk show where we talk about our experiences in the United States as because we were both immigrants. We both came from different countries. And uh, but I couldn't convince them to, to join me in that initiative. Then I started looking at podcasting because I was always listening to some type of podcast, news podcasts, uh, uh, was uh, one of the big things that I got into around that time. And then, then the pandemic hit in 2020. And I told myself, well, now is the time because I had just finished my dissertation. Um, I was just working on, on, on publications and I had a lot of free time. And uh, it was when I decided to teach myself new skills Mm -hmm. uh, so I just woke up one day, um, talked to my roommate and I said, look, um, I think now is a good time for me to start my podcasting project. Are you available today? Because I can uh, interview you. And because she has a global nonprofit organization called Bridge Kids International that I'm part of, and they do amazing work uh, in different African countries. And I think it was an opportunity for me to um, popularize that work that uh, she was doing in the United States, in mostly black communities, but also uh, in, in Africa, in Senegal included. So we did the first recording and then it was, it was very well, it was nice. And then uh, I edited it and then started. So from there, the rest is history. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and to be able to use the platform to promote the work of others, I think that that's one of the gifts of podcasting, right, is that you can, mm -hmm. you can, you know, bring an audience or, or attention to something else that you think is valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's true. Because uh, one of the things that I like about doing this is getting to talk to these amazing people some of them are scholars, others are activists, people who are doing business or have links with uh, Africa. And, you know, people we might not never hear of, right? And they're doing amazing things that need uh, other people's attention, right? And every time I talk to someone, um, I get to know more about their um, work, for instance, and things they are engaged in, it just gives me this um, sentiment of satisfaction that this is why I wanted to do this, because these people have amazing stories. They have amazing scholarship that the wider world needs to, to know about. And, and yes, every time I interview someone, it's just a sentiment of satisfaction that that I cannot describe that, you know, comes out of it. And then people start sharing it. So you get to tell their stories, but through that, you also get to tell your own story. That's so well put. Exactly. I think, you know, in our work, we're always learning and yes. podcasting is just one more way that we're not only learning, but we're able to share. And I think mm -hmm. that's what's really so beautiful about it. So Bamba, and on that front, I wanted to learn more about your work today um, and have you share it with our audience because you are an expert on social movements and civil society and, um, and Senegal in particular. So I would love it if you could put Senegal in a kind of comparative perspective for us. Um, 
give us a little bit of your sense of the lay of the land of civil society, social movements in Senegal, and in and to tell us, okay, what does the Senegalese experience help us to understand about civil society in general? What can we extrapolate from, um, from their experiences that maybe is generalizable or in what ways might you say Senegal is exceptional or an outlier? How can we understand what's happening in Senegal and, and, and what it tells us about civil society movements more generally? Yes. Uh, so civil society in general or, or social movements um, have been an integral part of Senegalese democracy. And in my work, um, I look at uh, the, the rise of these new social movements uh, in Francophone Africa, Senegal included. So I particularly look at Yanamar, which uh, was a movement that started in 2011. Uh, initially, it was a protest movement against the power outages that was taking place uh, around the country and uh, also the rising cost of living, but quickly turned into or morphed into a watchdog vis-a-vis -vis the political establishment of Senegal, but as well as a model of activism for other social movements around um, Africa, especially Francophone Africa, right? So um, they even inspired the formation of other movements such as Ballet Citoyen in 2014. And Ballet Citoyen, as you may know, um, has been or was at the forefront of the protest movement that ended with uh, the downfall of Blaise Compaore, who was in power for 27 years, but also inspired the formation of, uh, of uh, Filimbi in the Congo, Lucha or Lutte pour le changement in the Congo. So they have a transnational or Pan-African impact. And they've been also working on other uh, transatlantic initiative. We can talk more about that, such as the Afriki uh, network of social movements. So, and Yanamar is, has inherited this rich tradition in Senegal of uh, political activism and civil society, having a voice and being part of the political process and the democratic process. And since before independence, this has been uh, the culture in, in, in that country. Now, it is not a perfect, Senegal is a strong democracy, uh, but it is not a perfect democracy, right? And one of the strengths of its democracy so far, I would say, is actually the fact that there are so many, uh, it has a strong civil society that keeps in check um, the, 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 the power establishment, right? Um, I don't know if you, you probably remember in 2011 when Abdullah Wad, for instance, decided to change the constitution and make it possible for him to run for a third term. It is the civil society that, you know, stood up against, against him. It was the Anamar. Uh, it was other civil society organizations that stood up against him. Um, in, uh, back in 20, I think it was 2014, uh, when Maki wanted to also bring a constitutional change, the civil society stood up and spoke against, uh, against that. And so Senegal's democracy is characterized by that 
important part that these civil society organizations are playing, right? But there are also other elements such as the role of the uh, religious leaders, for instance, right? Um, but we cannot talk about democracy in Senegal without um, uh, or talking about the key role that these movements are playing. Now, for the last, the past decade, um, Francophone Africa, including Senegal, has seen a lot of turmoils, and most of them are connected to uh, unilateral constitutional changes, right? We've seen that happen in Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire uh, with Alassane Ouattara changing the constitution and running illegally for a third term. Most recently in Guinea, right? And in Senegal. And now we have Makis, President Macky Sall who uh, cannot constitutionally run for a third term, but he is uh, not giving a clear message about his intention for the upcoming uh, uh, electoral uh, presidential election. And it is these civil society organizations that are coming up and speaking against, right? These, uh, what we call forfeiture constitutional, right? These constitutional uh, uh, holdups. And yeah, so right now, I think, um, Recently, yesterday was election day um, in Senegal. Uh, for the most part, things went well. And it is, again, a testimony of um, the strength of the Senegalese uh, democracy. But there are a lot to, to, to work on. And I think uh, the salvation of Senegalese democracy will come from these uh, social movements and the civil society in general. And you're at work on a book project entitled um, Black Social Movement and Digital Technology and and looking at Yanamar kind of centrally as a case study in in, in Senegal, um, your, your project is examining how social movements in Francophone West Africa are spearheading a renaissance of Pan-Africanism, which you were alluding to earlier. And I wonder, you, you talk about a term neo-Pan-Africanism, and I wonder if you could share with our listeners what you mean by that. And maybe this is where you get to expand on the, you know, the Black Atlantic kind of cross-continental, um, continental and cross-continental collaborations. Wh how, and how can we take this, this, um, this term you're studying, neo-Pan-Africanism, and connect it to previous movements going back in history? So neo, I define neo-Pan-Africanism as the 21st century manifestation of Pan-African ideals through grassroots organizations, right? And using Francophone Africa as the epicenter of Pan-Africanism as a movement, but also as an ideology. Um, historically, uh, analysis uh, about Pan-Africanism has systematically excluded uh, Francophone Africa, but uh, or put focus on mm -hmm. Anglophone mm -hmm. Africa or the Anglophone world. Mm -hmm. So Francophone Africa, Arabophone, or non-Europhone Africa has, you know, a, a, a is quasi inexistent in those analyses. And what I try to do in this book project is to restore Francophone Africa in its rightful place in the history of Pan-Africanism. Because uh, they have, Francophone Africa has played an important role in uh, the 
Pan-Africanism as a movement, right? Um, I'm not even just talking about involvement of, of Blaise Jain, for instance, in uh, uh, the Pan-African uh, Congress of uh, uh, 1919, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but there are other, you know, uh, important elements or contribution that they brought into uh, the development of Pan-Africanism, yet they have been systematically sidelined, right? And there is a reason why that, that happened, right? I don't want to get into the details, but historically, there was a, a clash between the Francophone and the uh, Anglophone elements of the, uh, uh, the uh, Pan-African movement, right? This, was, this goes back to uh, the early 20th century, so in the 1920s. Dubois was not in, on, in good terms with uh, Isaac Beton, who was the Secretary General of the uh, Pan-African uh, Association, for instance, right? So we have that kind of uh, infighting that, in my opinion, have also contributed to this systematic uh, negligence. But now what is happening is that since the early 2000s, but especially since 2011, there is a resurgence of the discourse around Pan-Africanism. Uh, there is a resurgence of the discourse around the use, for instance, of the CFA currency mm -hmm. that's been mm -hmm. being used by mm -hmm. several uh, Francophone African countries, mm -hmm. right? So, and these movements uh, have been social movements, uh, contemporary social movements have been speaking against those types of initiatives that are holding back African economies, but especially Francophone African economies, right? Recently in 2018, Yanomar, uh, for instance, convened a summit called uh, the UPEC, Université Populaire de Langagement Citoyen in Dakar, that I think gathered around 53 social movements around the world. Uh, so these were coming from Africa, uh, the Americas, Europe. So it was a big movement. And the goal was to uh, look at, uh, to gauge the state of uh, social activism in, in Africa, but also in the African diasporas, uh, but also to form uh, what I call the, the first Pan-African platform of social movements in the 21st century right? It's called Afriki. So Afriki is this platform, Pan-African platform that gathers many Black social movements. And it was at the initiatives of these Francophone social movements, Yanamar, Filimbi, um, uh, Lucha, Balesitoy, right? And so far, there, people are not talking about that. But I think that's, that's, that is a very important historical moment in the history of modern day Pan-Africanism or what I call neo-Pan-Africanism, right? Because now what's happening is that Pan-Africanism at first was the affair of the elite, right? Mm. You have people like Edward Blyden, mm -hmm. right? Who developed the concept of black, uh, of African personality, right? Which Senghor used later as the basis for negritude, for mm -hmm, instance. Mm -hmm. You have folks like 
like Dubois, William Dubois, right? So these were the elites, right? People who were well-educated and who took the struggle upon their own, you know, and, and, and try to help liberate people, uh, black folks in general. Then around the 1940s, you know, you have the politicians now coming into the play. And then the 60s with the independence of African countries, Pan-Africanism became a uh, political project. And now in the 2000s, right, it is now a grassroots or it's becoming a grassroots project. What does Pan-Africanism mean to uh, the shopkeeper around the corner uh, in, in Dakar, right? Or the person who has a table full of uh, uh, vegetables around the corner in my neighborhood of City Bari'eli? What does that mean? What does the use of the CFA currency mean to those people, right? Now, it is no longer a concept for the elites and the educated, but you have people, the masses, right? People who do not consider themselves necessarily um, educated elite who are speaking about this issue. So that's where lies in um, uh, the, the, the strengths of neo-Pan-Africanism, but also uh, fighting against neo or neo-colonialism or neo-colonial processes. That's really powerful. Well, people may not be talking about it as much yet, but I'm glad that you're on the show and talking about it. So I want to return back to um, thinking a little bit more about um, some of the underlying social political factors here that you're, you're talking about and, and think about Senegal and, and democracy and stability, because you just referenced um, the Senegalese local elections that were just held this week, um, the municipal elections. And in many ways, it's interesting because the country really exhibits important strengths in multi-party competition, right? We've had significant alternation. We have alternation at the local level, the legislature, the National Assembly, and at the executive. And there has been this historic, as you well put it, a strength of civil society engagement, of opposition parties and their ability to um, to compete. There's been a really significant uh, freedom of association, freedom of the press, um, different voices and perspectives that undergird the democracy. And as you, as you mentioned, are, are quite foundational. And yet at the same time, you've referenced the ways in which there continue to be kind of troubling concentrations of power, attempts to change the constitution, to be able to run for a third term um, under questionable circumstances, limitations of the opposition in terms of um, um, you know, going after certain opposition leaders, making them ineligible to run uh, ca legal cases against opposition leaders. And we've seen the way in which that um, uh, makes democratic competition very challenging. So how would you describe the current state of democracy in Senegal's in Senegal in terms of what forces make it resilient? And what are the challenges that you see the country is facing right now? I mean, personally, I, I believe that the current state of democracy in Senegal is, um, is it, it can be troubling depending on which perspective you're looking at it from. Um, but then on the other hand, um, 
I say also that, you know, the foundations of the Senegalese democracy are still strong. And I think that yesterday's election um, is testimony to that. But at the same time, we have these unsolved, uh, unsolved issues. I tend to see democracy as, as a game with rules and that everybody should play by his rule. But what happens in Senegal sometimes, and we've seen that with Abdoulaye Wad, we're seeing it with Macky Sall, is that halfway through the game, uh, people in power, the power establishment, they decide to change the rule, right? They, tend, they decide to change the rules. And that's when problems, you know, uh, where, where the problem lies in. Um, Macky Sall has not clarified so far that if he's going to give up the power in 2024, I think the constitution is clear. He can only run for two terms. So how come in 2022, like almost three years to the presidential election, people are debating whether he's going to run or not? That doesn't make any sense. And when people ask him, uh, well, what's your final decision? There is no decision. The constitution has been clear, right? Just respect the constitution and then there is no problem. But he kept saying, well, I cannot answer yes or no to that question. We don't need his answer, right? The answer has been given by the constitution. He cannot run, period, okay? And so you have issues like that, that kind of weakens the democracy um, of Senegal, but any other country that would have similar issues would also see their democracy weakened, right? But we also have seen the, um, the weaponization of the justice system, which is another issue that uh, Senegalese democracy is suffering from, right? Justice is for everyone and everyone should abide by it. And it should be impartial. But what we have seen uh, with Macky Sall uh, is that if you are in his part of his coalition, uh, if you are, you know, um, part of his game, well, he will set you free. He's not going to bother you. But if you can potentially uh, pause a threat to his power and, and, and regime, then you're going to have problem with, with justice, right? We've seen that with Khalifa Sal, right? Although some people or, or the justice system have, you know, uh, saw causes to, to, to send him to, to prison. But we also know that <laughs> there, there is a game there that Khalifa Sal was a threat to uh, Maki Sal, right? Uh, we've seen that with Karim Wad also. Right. And then more recently, Usman Sonko, if somebody is accused of something and it's, it's rape in this case, it's 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 it has to be investigated. Right. And justice should should be served, but it should also follow its course. Right. Um, rape accusation is serious and should be taken seriously and investigated seriously. Right. But. We've seen that people now tend to take even these matters that they call private matters 
and politicize it, right? Uh, use it as political weapon against their opponent or for their political, for their own benefit, right? And in the same process, um, victimizing folks who unfortunately have no power, have, you know, nothing, there's not much they can do, right? So that's what I'm saying. The Senegalese democracy is fundamentally strong, I would say, but there are so many challenges uh, that needs to be taken care of if we do not want to end up like, you know, um, other places we've seen recently what's been happening uh, in that region. We, we do not want that. And we hope that those other countries will see uh, peaceful solutions to uh, the political issues that are going on over there. Absolutely. No, I think that's so well said in terms of the the kind of weaponization of the justice system. And then looking at the role of, you know, the components of resilience like civil society movements, like protests. You know, I think that was something that um, you covered really well in um, in your podcast, Africanist, um, episode 12, when you were talking about protests um, following this indictment of Usman Zonko in Senegal uh, with guests Umar Ba and Maryam Gay, um, which was a really wonderful episode. And I'm just wondering, kind of looking back at that com- at that point, at that vantage point now, do you think that anything changed as a result of the protests of mobilization of civil society around that moment? Um, because in, in other places, as you, as you, you know, are evoking um, in the region, civil society has really been shut down in Benin where it was, you know, very, very strong and also um, helped to, limit prior attempts for third terms by executives and the like. So, you know, do you think that this moment in Senegal, the protests have shaped what came after? I, I believe so. And, and I think the most potent example of that is the, the recent local elections where the, um, the, the party in power or the coalition in power, Benno Bokuyaka, uh, lost major strongholds, right? Major cities, including Dakar, Zegensho, Chess, right? Um, and, and many other, Gejoai, you know, which is um, where I come from. And actually, Makisal's brother was uh, the mayor of the city. So the election, in many regards, was a sanction, right, against the Saudi regime. And I believe it's partly due to um, those issues that accumulated and led eventually to the March 3rd protests, right? And these are some consequences or repercussions, I believe, of that that event, right? Um, On the other hand, there are things that have not changed, uh, Usman Sonko uh, still has not had his uh, court date yet, so we do not know what's going on about that that uh, issue. The judge who inherited the uh, the file unfortunately passed away a few months ago, uh, Judge Sambasal, and uh, it looks like there's no <laughs> other judges. Many other judges did not want to. Uh, inherit that that uh, that case, so uh, that's very interesting. 
recently also uh, ISR's um, uh, lawyer Matt Elajouf uh, organized a press conference, um, and uh, so there are a lot of things that we we don't know yet, and. A country with a serious justice system, a problem like this, as big as um, the Sonko Sar case, given all the consequences that came out of it, it should have been taken care of. But I'm afraid that, you know, they're going to wait since they want to politicize and weaponize everything. They are going to wait until um, close to the presidential election and they will try to to do something. It's not uh, fair to Usman Sonko. It's not fair to Ajisar, right? Uh, it's not fair to, to the Senegalese people because they want to know the truth, right? So that's what's, what's been happening. But I believe, again, that um, the protest movement has significantly affected Senegalese trust vis-a-vis the Makisal regime and the uh, recent election result have shown that although they still have the majority of the districts, they lost um, badly in so many key uh, cities. And it is to me um, a pre-step to 2024, the presidential election. Exactly, right? That these are the mm-hmm. the key sites, they're kind of the leading sites that- um, Exactly that are a precursor in many ways. Um, yeah, absolutely. So interesting. Um, I'm glad we have this particular election, you know, just held to be able to kind of see what some of the reaction is. So I really appreciated your conversation with recent guest, Prof. Sheikh Antababu of the University of Pennsylvania, and in particular how he, you and he both really talked about migration as being more than what um, social scientists have referred to as the push and pull factors of migration. Um, you know, thinking about it as, as, as not just a movement of people, but a movement of souls. And, and I just found that really moving, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and while that conversation focused on Marie Dia on the move, um, you know, all around the globe, it also conjured for me a different image of migration. And I'll admit, this is perhaps because of my position as a Westerner living in the West um, and consuming international media and the and and how international media portrays um, migration, as, especially from places like Senegal. Um, but when I was listening to your interview, I thought of Musa Torre's epic 2012 film, um, The Pirogue, uh, where a group of 30 people set off from a fishing village just outside of Dakar, headed for the Spanish Canary Islands in what will be and in what is in real life quite a dangerous journey. And I wonder if you can speak to what leads people, especially young men, um, to take such risks with their lives, to leave Senegal um, and, and other parts of, um, of West Africa for Europe. Um, how does this reflect the broader issues in Senegalese society? Um, you know, what what do you make of that? Um, both as you know, someone who hails from Senegal, but also as a scholar who has studied people on the move. Yes, uh, that's that's a very interesting question, and the migration migration in general has been a topical issue for a long time, especially 
uh, in uh, following uh, with the, 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 the rise of COVID-19, right? Uh, in Senegal, for instance, now we are um, witnessing the rise or the resurgence of what we call Barça, Wala Barça phenomenon. So Barça, Wala Barça is a form of illegal, quote unquote, illegal mig uh, migration using pirogues where young uh, Senegalese or sometimes people from other countries, uh, uh, they could come from Guinea, Mali, Gambia, um, take pirogues and cross the Atlantic to reach the Canary Island, right? And, and the term Barça uh, is, of course, a reference to Barcelona, Spain, which is a destination. And Barzak is an Arabic term, which means purgatory. But in the Senegalese wall of context, when they say, for instance, somebody, Damna Barzak, somebody went to Barzak, meaning they, they, has, they, they, they have died, right? So we've seen that is coming back with COVID-19, for instance, right? And the causes are not any different from when it first happened or when we first noticed the, 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 the first wave of Barcelona Bazak migration in the early 2000s, right? It's usually um, people uh, living in precarity, uh, either underemployed, unemployed, right? and deciding to take a chance uh, to uh, take those boats and, and, and go to Spain with the hope that once they reach the Canary Islands, right, that their lives will, will, will change. So there are multiple factors, but the main one is, is poverty, of course, right? Um, you have a country talking about Senegal where um, close to, to 40% of the population live below the poverty line, right? And you have also uh, social inequalities that are widening, not only in Senegal, but in the global South in, in general, right? So all of that combined, and of course, social pressure, because Senegal is, is a country, for instance, where um, there are a lot of expectations uh, coming from families, especially after you reach a certain age, whether you're a man or a woman, there are certain expectations. And if you do not feel, fulfill them, uh, there are certain, there might be certain consequences, right? So many of these people who actually engage in Barça or Barzak or Pirog migration, they are encouraged by family members to do so. Sometimes they pay for it, right? And there are a lot of works done uh, in that regards. Muslim Bay, uh, Linger Muslim Bay has uh, done some, some work uh, in that regard. Um, who else? Uh, Jan Garan also uh, has done a extensive research on that. Uh, Senegalese sociologists Alfred Ines Njai and Sheikh Omar Ba also have done extensive work on, on, on that. And I think that Musa, Musa Touré's uh, film is a perfect, perfect depiction of that phenomenon, Barça wala Barça, right? I was reading in, an interview that he gave about the, the film, and he said that um, the embarkation, the pirogue represents the fragile political 
and social uh, tissue of, of Africa, right? Of African countries, but also uh, it represents hope at the same time, right? Just to uh, reaffirm the idea that it is those social pressures, economic pressure, political pressure, right? And family pressures that cause many people, at least in the case of Senegal, to engage in, 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 in that phenomenon, and with COVID-19, now we see a resurgence. That's what I call COVID or what we call, I'm working on a, um, a manuscript with a uh, peer uh, from Boston University, Margaret Rowley, and we call that COVID-induced migration. So COVID-19 has exacerbated these economic conditions and has been forcing many people to uh, take the pirogues and try to reach the Canary Islands again, unfortunately. Absolutely. And as you say, you know, the way in which COVID-19 has shaped the ecosystem within which people are making these decisions, it also shapes the nature of the risks encountered along the way, ever more so. Now, Bamba, before we go, we always ask our guests our favorite question, um, and that is, what are you reading? What would you like to recommend to our listeners? Oh, wow. Okay. So what am I reading right now? So number one is this, um, I'm reading Rouge Melody. So it's a novel written by uh, Professor Baidalai Khan. So Professor Khan was actually my um, uh, professor of African literature and civilization and British literature and civilization uh, in Senegal at Gaston Berger University. And it's a very good book. Um, And it talks about the uh, like student organizations uh, in Senegal. And this is around the, you know, the, post-independence Senegal and how uh, engaged these students were, right, during that time. So it's a very interesting book, that uh, novel that I recommend everybody to to read. It's called Rouge Melody. So, so far, they only have the French version, but I hope they will have the um, English version and versions in other languages. The second one, I would say, is this one. The 1619 Project. So, I mean, this, this, is, <laughs> this is the book of the year in the United States. So um, I've been reading this one. Uh, and one of the, my colleagues, uh, Leslie Alexander, is a contributor to this book. And I'm hoping to have her on my podcast, The Africanist, to talk about her contribution to the book and to the project and it's what it represents uh, globally. And then uh, there is another, so I've been reading a lot of, <laughs> a lot of theory books, uh, uh, but I would also suggest um, the, there is another novel called No Woman No Cry by uh, Ask Gay. He's also a Senegalese novelist that I've been reading. This is probably my, you know, 10th time reading that book because it's so good. 
and uh, it's called No Woman, No Woman No Cry. It's the title is in English, but it's actually written in French. So it's a very good uh, book, No Woman No Cry. So I would suggest those those three. I love that. And actually, just the mention of Bad Laikan mm-hmm. takes me back to my own days at University Gaston Berger, uh, where he was the, the mentor for our for uh, the year when I was there um, as, a, as a study abroad exchange student. So uh, I love, I can't wait to read that book in honor yeah. of, you know, all of his many, many, many contributions. So um, those He's are great. Those are all amazing um, suggestions. Bamba, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. This is a really fantastic conversation. I love um, how you've been able to share with us, you know, both the the kind of hope um, that underlies civil society movements and also the broader ideological project of Pan-Africanism and what it means in our contemporary moment. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachel and Kim. This was fantastic. I am very honored to... Uh, be your guest on this podcast so thank you very much and i hope you come to you will come to mind very soon thanks for listening to this week's episode of upahamu africa you can find more episodes show notes and transcripts on our website upahamuafrica.com this podcast is produced and managed by megan demint with help from production assistants Jack Kubinek, Chukufanaya Ikechukwu, and Manuel Tafet. Our non-resident podcast fellows are Chidu Nyaruwata, Wanjiku Ngugi, Sama Fazi, Gretchen Walsh, and Soinato Lebo. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, Sabiri Salama. Salama.